Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. In this episode, I sit down with VP of Product at Intercom, Paul Adams. We talk about Paul's design experiences at Dyson, Facebook, Google, and now Intercom, and Intercom's mission to make customer experience at scale more human. Enjoy the show. Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's very good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'd love to start off with you sharing a little bit with folks listening in on how you found your way into design and when you knew it was something you wanted to pursue as a career. Yeah, uh, it started a long time ago, I guess. Uh, I mean, the honestly, first time was probably when I was a teenager. Like everyone, I was trying to figure out what to do with my life after school. And I was going to go to university and trying to figure out what I wanted to study. And I guess when you're 15 or 16, you don't really know uh, and you fall into things. Um, but I was always interested in architecture and some of the study uh, things I was studying in school at the time were related to that, like building and drawing, technical drawing and things like that. So I thought I was going to go and be an architect. And just at the last minute, I actually decided to study industrial design instead and ended up doing that. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the university I went to was um, called NCAD in Dublin in Ireland. And it's very much an art art-driven college, uh, very creative place, as you might imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really good. And after that, um, I worked as an industrial designer for a while. I then, as the internet started to take off, moved into what's now known as interaction design, I guess. And from there, went into many other things since. Excellent. Excellent. So I read somewhere that your first position was with a manufacturer of car dashboards. Can you tell me more about this experience? Yeah, that was uh, a company called Forcia in, in Germany. Uh, this How I ended up there was uh, somewhat ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> myself and a bunch of my friends in university at the time needed to do an internship as part of our course. And you could the, 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 the university would organize internships in Ireland. But us being these, um, you know, uh, globally minded people who wanted to have fun, started applying for internships in other parts of the world, uh, everywhere from uh, Korea, which has a really strong industrial design background with Samsung and LG and so on. And randomly for CIA, this company in Germany that I, I ended up applying to, decided they wanted to bring me there based on a letter. Uh, and so I went and yeah, it was fun. Um, I, I worked there mostly on concept design stuff. I actually worked on automotive seating. Hmm. Uh, so Forsea are basically a, a company that are subcontracted from um, all the big car manufacturers. So like VW and Audi and all the big groups will actually subcontract out large parts of the car to other companies and Forsea is one of them. So yeah, I was designing car seats. Oh, uh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty weird first job, but cool. <laughs> yeah, very weird in hindsight. <laughs> and you also, um, you worked at Dyson and I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, what the culture was like there. Yeah, Dyson uh, was an amazing experience. I was there for about two years. Um, I originally joined and uh, joined a team called NPD, which is New Product Development. And at the time, Dyson was having huge success. Uh, you know, obviously with the vacuum cleaner, it was a, a completely fundamentally different way to to design and build a product like that. They also had a washing machine at the time, which is also uh, fundamentally different since uh, decommissioned, I guess. Um, had uh, reliability issues, uh, but the so at the time the, the the culture there was one in which we thought we could reinvent everything, you know. So like things like kettles uh, or uh, toasters or ironing, anything that was very stable and hadn't changed in a long time was ripe for a rethink. And I worked so the first kind of half of my time there was just crazy, like working on 
crazy ideas like how to re- how to think of new ways to boil water could we like <laughs> disrupt the kettle uh, and um like the uh the hand dryers actually that dyson um released like shortly after i left were the genesis for that was actually trying to redesign the iron and so um we actually failed at, at a lot of the rethinks just a lot of the physics didn't add up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the laws of physics that prevented us from making things better. And then so that was that kind of lasted for the first half of my time there. It was very young. A lot, you know, Dyson at the time. I don't. I've no idea what it's like now. But at the time, um, hired a lot of young people, a lot of graduates from university, people like myself. I was in my early twenties, who were ambitious and their mind was somewhat unconstrained, and they would try anything. Uh, and so it was a lot of fun. The second half of my time there, I moved into one of the teams that was designing and building the vacuum cleaners. Um, the main ta- main thing I did there was work on a team that designed the first cleaner for Japan for Dyson. And that was fascinating because we had a very specific problem, which was to build a cleaner that was tiny. Uh, you know, a lot of the apartments and homes in Japan, large parts of Japan, like Tokyo, are very, very, very small. But the other interesting part about it was that Dyson kind of merged design and engineering. So um, James Dyson's philosophy was one in which uh, engineering and design are basically two sides of the same coin. So my title there, I think, was actually product design engineer. Hmm. And I'm, as I said earlier, I went to art college. I'm not an engineer. And uh, I think I designed a lot of th- things that can't be made. Uh, they just would never come out of a mold if you actually tried to make them. <laughs> Um, But it was fascinating because it was very much the expectation that in order to design something, you needed to know how it was going to be made. So there's a very, very heavy emphasis on engineering. Right. It's sort of, well, ahead of of its time, really. Um, Yeah. Look at companies that are now just thinking about this and trying to figure out how to make that happen. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. I often think back to the idea that with software today, you know, a lot of designers can't code and i actually don't necessarily advocate that they should but they should definitely understand how computers work you know at at all the foundational levels and that was kind of my experience at dyson you you were just not a good industrial designer unless you knew how injection molding worked right uh, how mechanical engineering worked at like all the fundamental levels like you were reasonably good at physics it was kind of table stakes to be a good industrial designer and so only now i think is software and and the world's technology catching up to that idea that of course, you should understand how the technology will work in order to design for it. Right, right. Understanding the constraints is really a big piece yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So you also worked at uh, at Facebook and you worked with brands like Nike. And I'd love for you to talk more about what that experience was like. Yeah, that was uh, that was cool. I joined Facebook. I um, can't remember how when it was. I was at Google for about four years after Dyson and I left Google and joined Facebook and I was there as a product manager first and then I changed roles and joined this team uh, run by a fantastic guy called Mark Darcy and it was really uh, a creative agency inside Facebook. So the situation at the time was that you've all these amazing businesses and brands like Nike and Starbucks who wanted to build on the Facebook platform. They wanted to integrate with Facebook but they didn't really know how. Uh, it was very Facebook was very new and so we built this agency internally to help those companies. And so it ranged from a lot of things, you know, like a create, like any creative agency, there was um, different types of roles, mm-hmm. uh, like creative directors, type type roles, designers, even like um, people who are really good at planning, things like that. Um, but my role specifically was very uh, design oriented. So we would run a program where the likes of Nike uh, or Starbucks would come to Facebook. They would 
uh, or we teach them basically about a lot of things, everything from like the internet to like how the internet works <laughs> at times. Uh, the likes of Nike and Starbucks got this, but a lot of other companies really, this was very new to them. Like we worked with a lot of Fortune 100 companies um, and the ones that, that had uh, um, not so much a background in technology, obviously sometimes needed to, to learn some fundamentals. So a lot of stuff about the internet, how Facebook worked, why why it had exploded, like what are the social dynamics behind the behavior, um, and then design, a lot of design fundamentals, like what's good interaction design, you know, how do you, what's a good user experience, how do you run research, uh, all the way to building software. So we'd run little programs where we would work on a project together, we'd partner, uh, and over the course of a few weeks, um, we'd build something together. Wow. So were these people that were coming in, were they from like the marketing side of of uh, their companies or, you know, who were they? Yeah, it depended uh, and it changed. Um, like with Nike specifically, it, was, it wasn't so much the marketing side as the product side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually the, we worked on Nike Plus with them. Um, we built um, Facebook and so Nike runs a lot of events, you know, marathons and so mm-hmm. on. And we built Facebook integration into their running apps. And so you would sign up for the, the run with Facebook. You would sign up with friends. You would train. You'd get a training program. You'd train together, that type of thing. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it was really exciting and really cool. And Nike Plus was this emerging thing. Nike at the time had the fuel band. It was before they got rid of that. Uh, and so it was uh, just a world of possibilities. Um, and so you're working with Nike's technology team. At the time, they outsourced it to mainly RGA and AKQA to agencies. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were working with AKQA and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Neat. So let's fast forward. Um, you're now at Intercom. Yes. Tell me about what you do there. Uh, I run our product team. So that includes product management, uh, product design, uh, research and content strategy. Okay. So what does a day look like? Looks crazy. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> never the same imagine. yeah 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 i try and keep it structured but it's often hard um we're we're in a fairly rare position we're growing like crazy um which is obviously very good news for us uh but it's very challenging um we you know the we've like traveled in size in the last 12 months in terms of employees and you know whilst once we had honestly no designers like when i joined intercom just over three years ago i was the it was like you know there's like nine people here in dublin and five over in san francisco and um there was no pms like product managers Mm -hmm. no designers no researchers so i i kind of like as you do at a startup in that tiny early stage you just kind of do everything Mm -hmm. and then over time we hired product managers we hired designers we hired researchers over time, they became teams themselves. We hired a director of design, director of research, and so on. Um, and so now I oversee each of those functions. And so a lot of my day is just um, checking in uh, with projects, making sure that we're all aligned. Um, we have a very strong design philosophy, very strong product philosophy. And uh, because we've added so many people over the last year or so, they haven't yet internalized it fully mm-hmm. and so a lot of my job is actually just making sure that the projects uh, as they run are aligned with what we're trying to do long term excellent so how about how big is uh, the design group or groups yeah the pro so we actually have two design groups so we have a product design group uh which you know which is basically our product and engineering team everyone who builds the product mm-hmm and uh, uh, I actually don't know the number off, off the top of my head, but it's roughly 10 to 12 people. Okay. 
I think it's a 10 to 12 person design team. Mm -hmm. That's just product design. Uh, Over in San Francisco, we have, we also have a brand design team uh, run by Stuart Scott Curran, who's uh, a fantastic guy. He's joined us uh, a few months ago. Uh, I don't know what size that team is again, because we grow so fast. I honestly lose track of the numbers. I want to say they have between five and ten designers okay so for those people and i can't imagine but there there probably are people that don't know what intercom does do you want to just give a quick rundown uh, i actually forgot we also have our growth team in san francisco <laughs> Sorry, oh. three design, <laughs> yeah, design team there as well i was actually including that in five to ten so we've actually two teams in san francisco growth and uh brand mm. uh sorry <laughs> so um you asked me, sorry, I forgot the question. That's quite all right. Um, I, what I wanted you to just talk a little bit about, well, let's let's kind of change it up, actually. Tell me what you've learned um, over the last three years and just building up these teams. Yeah, a lot. <laughs> uh, it's been a bit of a journey. You know, we, we, like everyone else, got a lot of things wrong and learned what works by doing a bunch of things that didn't work first. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot, a lot of a lot of the answer now is actually formed by recency. So, you know, a year ago, we would have learned a lot about building teams. And I've honestly forgotten it. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, we wrote it in blog posts. We actually <laughs> write a lot about this. But uh, so, so, so there are things that come to mind. But they're very topical for the stage we're at today. Mm-hmm. One area, for example, is ambiguity. So I'm learning um, fast that people embrace and are comfortable with ambiguity in very different ways some people love the uh, the idea of ambiguity that the future is uncertain there's lots of different directions uh we don't know any answers it's a bit chaotic uh we're figuring it as we go there's like a sea of just uh, uncertainty and people like lean into that they love it they do their best work in a type of environment um and that's kind of like early startup mode you know like i'm one of those types of people that that kind of like thrives in, in ambiguity but as we've gotten bigger, I've come to realize that that's not true for everybody. And actually, some people are far better when things are not ambiguous. And they do their best work when things are very certain. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's tempting to say that ambiguity is, like, better than certainty, you know, in terms of, like, oh, what's appealing as a designer? Oh, of course you want to, like, be in the world where anything's possible. That's not necessarily true. The world where anything's possible is also the unfocused world <laughs> and chaotic world. Um and a world where you've you've a lot more certainty, you know, these are the two things we're going to do, only these two things. Here is how we're going to do them. And now set yourself free within those constraints. A lot of people actually much prefer that and do their best work in that environment. So I'm trying to figure this out as we go. We've kind of learned that we need to be very clear, uh, like a lot of our strategy was in our heads for many years mm. And that actually worked kind of like the people who thrive in ambiguity just get it through osmosis. They're not like um, they're not blocked by not having the exact answers or the exact constraints. But as we grow, we need to get much better at that. So Mm -hmm. now we really try and communicate our strategy clearly and lay it out for people so that they can choose whether they want to constrain themselves or not. Mm. That's a really interesting observation, because a lot of companies, I would say, would say, well, it's all about, you know, ambiguity um, and that that's just the way of the world today. But you're right. That can lead to chaos if yeah. <laughs> if and you allow of, it to kind of run out, you know. Totally. Yeah. And a, t- and a lack of focus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of one big thing. Um, another kind of interesting one is that, uh, again, this is this is a function of scale. Um, as we've gotten bigger we have bigger meetings. And when we were small, we were kind of a bit obsessive about tiny meetings, like 
you know, uh, someone would be in a meeting and there'd be like three people and we'd be like, mm, do you need to be here? And they're like, <laughs> I don't need to be here. Yep. All right. See ya. And they'd leave. And everyone would be like, yes, that's better. Like the person goes back to the other work they have to do. The meeting is now only two people. It's more efficient. It's faster. And there's definitely truth to that. Like as you're, if you're a tiny company, you know, that's, that's sensible and efficient. Mm-hmm. As you grow, I think you need to, this is a lesson we're learning. You need to embrace the idea that large meetings are actually great. And they're great if they're run well. But um, a lot of people need to know a lot of things. You know, we have a scenario here where there could be um, could be like a quick design review. We may make a decision, like some fundamental design decision, and it might take half an hour. And, you know, that could be like a designer, actually like not even me in the room, you know, two, two other people, two designers or a designer or a product manager. And what happens is that that decision influence, like impacts literally a dozen people someone in product marketing, someone in growth, the engineers who need to build it, uh, me, uh, like to keep updated, you know, it just impacts like a lot of people. And so we're basically just learning that the most efficient thing to do is have those people in the meeting too. Mm. Uh, And so you kind of have this dynamic where some people in the meeting, a small number of people in the meeting are the decision makers or the contributors to the decision directly. And some people are just observers, you know, they're not there to influence the decision. They're there simply to understand why that decision was made so that when they go on to make further decisions, they have the context. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's interesting. When you first said large meetings are good, I thought, ooh. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, it's certainly, it's a community. You usually find out who should have been in the meeting, right? After you've had the meeting and realized, oh, this wasn't communicated out to everybody affected. Right. Um, I'm curious about the observer versus decision maker. Do you actually explicitly state people's roles in the meeting? Yeah, we don't. Um, We're not there yet. I I don't know if we'll get to a place where we need to. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of it, people just use common sense, you know. Uh, Obviously, like the reason large meetings get a bad rap, I think, is because people no one really knows their role. And because they're invited to the meeting, they, they think they're supposed to say something. <laughs> uh, and so like everyone has an opinion and like everyone's chipping in and it's just kind of a mess and it's inefficient and you get nowhere. So because we've talked about it internally somewhat, I think people feel more like it's more obvious, you know, like typically in a product type review, like a product review or a design review, mm-hmm. the will be like a main designer and like a main product manager. And there could be a second designer there. He was there because whatever happens in this meeting would have impacted a different project they're working on. Mm-hmm. Or they have context uh, that informs this this product or design decision. And so in both of those scenarios, they're much they're a secondary role. You know, they kind of know their role. And so we haven't really had had that requirement yet where the roles have to be called out. But it's entirely possible we, that we will and need to do that in the future and it would be better. Mm. Interesting. So I the the previous question was, and I think most people know what Intercom does, but maybe you could oh, give right, a quick, yeah. a quick uh, rundown. Yeah. Um, so we are building a customer communication platform. The backstory here is really simple, to be honest. Um, when you think about business, how businesses run in the real world, like offline, without the internet. So if you go back 20 years ago, before the internet was commonplace, it was all personal. It was typically face-to-face, uh, you know, marketplaces and stores and so on, all the way back. And so people knew who they were buying from. There was a little bit of a relationship there. There was like trust and loyalty and so on. Um, the problem with that was there was no scale. So like a, a local store could only sell to people within a certain geographic radius. And so 
the internet brought scale, you know, suddenly like anyone in business could now sell to anyone in the world. Mm-hmm. And, but with that scale came problems like, oh, I just like sold this product to a thousand people and now a hundred of them have a complaint and I need to deal with that complaint with these hundred people or, uh, you know, I'm sending this email announcing our new thing to these one million subscribers, but oh no, if any of them reply, like I'm screwed. And so the 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 way this evolved was that um, the technology to support these things became impersonal. You know, they kind of removed the personality and the human connection connection from it. Mm-hmm. So you've got things like do not reply email uh, tickets. You know, if you have a problem, you have to get it. You have to get a ticket and get in a queue, and it's just inhuman, honestly. And so our mission is to fix that uh, so that um, customer communication on the internet becomes personal again and you see the names and faces of people uh, it's much more like real life it's more rewarding it's nicer you feel some level of a connection you get to talk to a person not to some machine uh, so we're we're building software uh, building tools for businesses to uh, connect much more deeply with their customers that's great I mean that's a mighty big problem as we all know yes we hope that in the long run we kill all the uh, uh, faceless, humanless software that you have to struggle with today. So are bots part of your your plan? Yeah, you know, bots are interesting. Um, there was obviously a bit of a bot hype mm. frenzy going on a few months ago, and it's died down. Uh, bots are interesting because um, a lot of people actually have a different f- version of the future to us. You know, they think that, like, bots can step in for humans in a lot of places and you, know, you get automation and efficiency that way. We've actually, we've actually, we've built a bunch of bots. We ha- actually have bots in Intercom. We're, we're building, we're working on more, um, but we've tested them a lot. We've used them a lot. We've put them in beta. We've had customers use them and we found that the use case for bots is quite narrow today. So, um, you know, there are scenarios where talking to a bot is faster than talking to a person, mm-hmm. but there are many scenarios where talking to a person is way better than talking to a bot. Like, um, you know, if you work in customer support, a bot doesn't have empathy. A bot can't deal with someone who's annoyed or angry or upset. Mm. Um, these are th- these are all the scenarios in which a person is going to be better than a bot. Uh, but then there's like, at the other end of the scale, queries that are easily automated. You know, if you simply want to know, like, when's my next bill due and how much is it going to be? A bot can answer that way faster than a human you know mm-hmm. a computer can answer that way faster than a human so there's like a, a a range of interactions and many of them will need people for a long long time possibly forever mm-hmm. uh, some of them are better with bots but that's kind of where we're at today we also have a kind of philosophy that we don't blur the two you know, this is quite different to what Facebook are doing. Facebook are kind of deliberately blurring them, so it's unclear if you're talking to a bot or a person. Mm-hmm. And they're doing that for a bunch of reasons. But we're just in a philosophically different place. We think it's better if you know. Uh, you know, if you know you're talking to a bot, you can uh, have appropriate expectations. Whereas if you know you're talking to a human, you can have other expectations. Mm-hmm. Why do you think they're doing that? Um, I think I think a lot of it's an experiment to kind of see where the boundaries are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a there is like a dream there that you can get to a place with artificial intelligence where bots can answer a lot of queries uh, that humans answer today. So there's huge efficiency gains to be made. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm yeah, I'm just more. Oh, go ahead. I was, was going to say I'm more bearish than maybe Facebook are at this point in time, but who knows? They're they're doing their thing, we're doing ours. They're a little bit different. 
uh, who knows? It could go, it's a very early days for all these types of things. Mm, it just feels very squishy. Yeah. Um, interesting. So talk to me about the design scene in, in Dublin. What is it like? I mean, is it large? Is it, you know, and you've obviously spent time in San Francisco as a comparison. I'm curious to hear your observations. Yeah, the scene in Dublin is growing and getting better for sure. Um, historically, it's been strong in graphic design. You know, so it depends what design discipline you're talking about. Uh, strong, strong graphic design historically in the creative arts. So that we, uh, and you know, you can send that to the, honestly almost things like theatre and so on. Like Ireland has a very strong the, like theatre and literature background as a country. Um, so that extends into graphic design. So there's conferences like Offset, which are like really famous, and like you'll have like people f- from all over the world fly in for that. Um, in terms of uh, design within technology, you know whether that's user experience design or interaction design, product design within software, it's very nascent and early. The large technology companies like Google and Amazon, uh, Facebook, Twitter have huge offices in Dublin. Their European HQ is here. Many of them employ thousands of people here, but they don't have design teams here. Uh, and so slowly but surely that's changing. You know, other companies are starting to uh, build design teams here. Um, we have all of our product design team here. And uh, so it's getting better slowly but surely. Interesting. So what? who are, is there if it's not designers? I mean, is it mainly engineering or marketing or sales? Yeah, a lot of oper- a lot of product operations, business operations, mm-hmm. things like customer support, um, a lot of back-end engineering. So like Amazon builds a lot of AWS in Dublin, uh, a lot of systems engineering, systems architecture, uh, not so much front-end product design or, di- you know, digital design or sure. picture. Pick your term of choice. Mm, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, big question. What do you think is the next big challenge for design? Uh, it's interesting. I I talk a lot about systems thinking uh, mm. in the last few years. And there's a bunch of things wrapped up in this. Um, when we interview designers here, the number one thing I look for personally is the ability to think in systems, uh, the ability to design systems and what I mean there is 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 the kind of uh, ability to understand how something is going to be made. What are all the moving components? How are they related to one another? How are they connected? What are the relationships between them? If you change something in one part of the system, the ability to understand how that will ripple through and change things in other parts of the system. Uh, this is like a very specific skill set in, in one way, but it's actually quite broad in another way. And... Um, a lot of design schools don't teach it. A lot of engineering schools do, uh, but in, in a slightly different way. And I think it's huge. I think it's going to be. I think it's like the next big thing. Um, I think that a lot of the emerging products that we all work on are systems. You know, they're not apps. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Facebook isn't an app. Facebook isn't a website or an app. It's a system. It's this huge, huge ecosystem. And the people who can think in systems and design systems will do far better there. And Increasingly, we have um, a lot of uh, emerging um, technologies that don't even involve screens. So never mind apps or websites. They don't have screens at all. Things like the Amazon Echo, you know, things that are controlled by voice, um, things like cars, like technology is, is um, sweeping into these things. And so uh, a lot of designers today who open Photoshop or Sketch and design pixels won't, dis- won't in the future, you know. Um, and they'll design all sorts of non-screen-based things. 
And I think the people who can understand systems will be the most successful. Mm, that's a really good point. So do you have recommendations? I mean, if somebody wants to learn, a designer wants to learn about systems thinking, like how did you, I mean, did you learn that in in undergrad or do you have recommendations of books or websites or people to follow? Yeah, um, I never formally learned it. Uh, I learned it on the job, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um I guess I learned some of it at Google, uh, you know, as we were designing things there. I worked in a lot of social products there. It started to become clear that we were, we were designing systems here and not apps. I honestly learned most of it at Facebook. That's where I really, really got to think deeply about systems. Facebook culturally is excellent at this. Um, you know, the Facebook system is is arguably the best example of a system in technology, like a kind of a, a, a user-facing system in technology. Mm-hmm. They're amazing back-end systems, but for, for a system that people interact with, um, Facebook's is world-class. And the things there, you know, you'd be surprised the types of things that, that people study there to understand systems. Things like urban planning, you know, a lot there's a lot of people there who read Christopher Alexander's work uh, from the 70s, like a pattern language, mm-hmm. uh, understanding uh, how towns and cities and homes can be designed and that there is actually a, a better way to do a one better way to do that if you think about it as this amazing system uh that was one big influence um Danella meadows uh wrote a book again it's quite old called thinking and systems which is like a kind of a primer on a lot of this stuff um what else to, to, to date there isn't yet the the kind of canonical book on this in terms of you know, modern design practices or modern designers or, mm-hmm. or design within technology. Uh, someone's yet to do that. And I, so actually a lot of things I rely on are quite old. They're from the 70s. Right, right. Well, yeah. Christopher Alexander pops up again and again. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to uh, see the influence that that work has had on so many other disciplines. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. So beyond your own work, what people or projects are you grabbing your attention these days? What do you find interesting? Yeah, this is this kind of has, uh, uh, historically is mapped out with my kind of career, you know. So like when I was at Facebook, it was things like um, Marshall McLuhan was a big influence at the time. Like I'd read about Marshall McLuhan many times in the past, but at Facebook, I really kind of like dug into that you know he, he is an amazing media theorist and a lot of the things he said you know many decades ago are incredibly uh, accurate in terms of how we think and what we do today so that and that kind of mapped this creative agency that i worked in in facebook at the time and also like christopher alexander you know again three four five years ago mapped directly to the type i was designing systems and mapped directly to the type of work i was doing i was trying to design systems trying to help you know the likes of nike and starbucks and so on think in systems uh so today uh kind of pretty obviously it's actually things like um other people building companies uh other people building products that are that have a broad footprint like intercoms um people building teams you know they're the types of things that um i read about today excellent um one final question where do you find inspiration and it can be anywhere for your work yeah the uh, honestly, the answer is by being curious, which isn't really an answer, but <laughs> I think it's the truth. Uh, you know, I, I've often said to people over the years that um, if I could correlate anything with success, you know, like, so whether that's success I've had or whether it's success other people I've worked with have had, um, all the best designers that I've worked with in the, over the years, they are insatiably curious. They have no end to their curiosity, you know, whether that's um, 
we've just shipped this piece of design work. Does it work? Do people like it? Do they use it? Is it confusing? Like they are following up and following through to understand because they're so curious about the thing that they've made. Mm. Uh, whereas the uh, you know lower performing designers kind of finish the work, ship it to customers, and then work on the next thing. And never they don't have any curiosity around it. Um, and that, it's these kind of feedback loops that make people great and give them inspiration for what to do better next time. Uh, and that curiosity extends to everything, you know, like um, when I talk to some designers, especially younger designers, and they ask me for recommendations on things they should read to become a better designer. And I tell them they should read, you know, Chris Alexander's book from like 1979, <laughs> which is like 5,000 pages long and a like giant yellow, horrible cover. <laughs> like it's you know, uh, but that's because I was, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about how cities work and how things organically evolve and emergence. And, you know, uh, I think that that's the only real answer I have that, um, I'm not necessarily inspired by any one thing, but actually the inspiration that might appear in whatever a meeting or an email, honestly, or something else is actually coming from this idea that, I have curiosity to the point where I just annoy people by asking them so many questions. <laughs> Those are the fun people to be around, right? I mean, well, I don't know about that. I, <laughs> Not I everyone to, agrees, yeah. I'm sure. But, but I, yeah, I used to have, I, yeah, yeah. I used to have a job when, um, when I worked in university in a coffee shop. And I literally, you know, this is going back when I was like 18 or 19. And I, my manager at the time, I used to drive her nuts. <laughs> like, why does it work like that? Why is the coffee machine that way? Why do we not do this way? This sort of thing. Like, I just literally asked her questions all day long. And I think uh, I drove her mad. <laughs> Well, it's working for you now, so. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> she, yeah, she had to put up with it for my benefit. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. No worries. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You can reach Paul through his Twitter handle at P-A-D-D-A-Y. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn, so you never miss an episode. <laughs>